Hi, everybody. Welcome to Shasai Podcast, conversations between scholars from around the world who study childhood, youth, and related institutions historically. As an official production of the Society for the History of Children and Youth, you can subscribe to these shows through iTunes or Google Play. Written and visual materials associated with each episode are available at our website, shcy.org. Enjoy. Hi, this is Lisa Cody. I'm a professor of history at Claremont McKenna College. And I'm speaking today with my colleague, Professor Daniel Livesay, about his 2018 book, Children of Uncertain Fortune, Mixed Race Jamaicans in Britain and the Atlantic Family from 1733 to 1833. So Dan, can you tell us a little bit about the scope of this book? Sure, yeah, so the book, uh... The title, I think, gives a fair amount of it away, but the, the basics of the book are it looks at uh, mixed race individuals in Jamaica, and that group is kind of an interesting group of people. Um, Jamaica, a lot of people don't know about the history of that island, but it was a massive slave uh, uh, kind of outpost. So um, three times as many Africans were sent to Jamaica as the entire 13 colonies combined. And it was a massive sugar plantation, basically. And so there were um, over 1.2 million Africans that were sent to that island. And it created um, just a really, really horrific place, to be honest, that was overseen by a very small white minority of people. And it was primarily white men. There's been a lot of interesting work done in the last few years about the prevalence of white women in Jamaica, but it was dominated by white men who were overseeing uh, these enslaved Africans. And um, part of what happened and part of the ways that um, whites would terrorize enslaved people especially enslaved women was through sexual violence. Um, but there could also be forms of relationships, which I would by no means call consensual, but were, were perhaps a little bit less structured around that kind of graphic violence and more around some kind of partnership that for some enslaved women could allow for them to become free or allow for their children to become manumitted. And so there are these interracial relationships on that island that produced a fairly substantial mixed race population over the course of the 18th century. And so what this book looks at is a sort of very small slice of that mixed race population, really the most elite of that mixed race population. And these are children who, uh, who their fathers and their mothers did not wanna see staying on the island because it was such a horrible place, not only in terms of uh, slavery, but also in terms of the sort of racism that was prevalent in an island like that, that was so structured around violence and terror. And so, um, over the course of about a hundred year period, I follow about 400 mixed race individuals who get sent off from Jamaica and go to Britain, um, primarily to Scotland and England. And they go there to escape this island, as I mentioned. Uh, they go there to go to school in Britain. Um, Jamaica has really only one working school over the course of the 18th century. And many mixed race people are not allowed to go to that school. And so Britain is sort of the, the prime options for those who wanna be educated. Um, or they go uh, to, to learn a trade and to be an apprentice somewhere. And in some cases, those people go back to Jamaica. In some cases, they go to other places. And in other cases, they just stay in Britain. So I really wanted to look and understand sort of why um, sort of these interracial couples were interested in sending these children off to Britain. And in particular, what was kind of fascinating about it is that they're uh, sort of the, for these white men, their white relatives back in Britain were taking care of these mixed race people. And 
most of them had never seen a person of color in their life. Um, they probably didn't necessarily feel all that generous towards people of African descent. So why was it that they were taking care of these children? Um, and then I was also just kind of curious what it meant for a British society that was struggling with this uh, kind of legacy or with, with the, the, uh, um, the slave trade in general and the sort of emerging abolitionist movement. Um, so what it meant to have these mixed race individuals who were very prominent and they had a lot of money behind them because their fathers were these very rich planters and slave merchants. Um, what did it mean for them to be in Britain at a time in which there was a lot of consideration and reflection, discussion about what race might have meant. So that's really what the scope of the book is. It's really so interesting. So how did you how did you become interested in this? And um, how did you find out information about these 400 different ind individuals? Well, it was totally happenstance. Um, basically, when I went to graduate school at the University of Michigan, I kind of arrived knowing that I wanted to do something about slavery. I wasn't exactly sure what it was, but um, I had taken a class on slavery as an undergraduate, and it had kind of just been the most exciting class I had ever taken. And it, it sort of completely changed my view of what history was. And I had gone from just sort of taking classes about wars and you know, World War I class, World War II class, American Revolution class. And, and I kind of thought that's what history was. And then I took this class on slavery and I realized all the really fascinating social aspects to life in the past. And that you could study the experiences of individuals who were not presidents and kings and queens. And that really was exciting to me. And I wanted to learn more about that. So I arrived in graduate school with a really rough sense about what I might want to do. And it was just kind of very fortuitous that when I arrived, um, the, the early American archival library on the campus of the University of Michigan called the Clements Library had just purchased the papers of a slave trader from Kingston, Jamaica named John Taylor. And they needed someone to go through and basically sort the papers and kind of put them in order. And you know, I was a lowly grad student, needed money. And so I was more than happy to do that. So I start going through those papers and, you know, for anyone who's interested in uh, kind of the economics of slavery, those papers are, are treasure trove because it goes about the sort of day-to-day -day process of slave trading. And, and it's, uh, John Taylor was, was in Kingston trading Africans from uh, 1783 to 1792, sort of the height of the slave trade in Jamaica. So you really get a snapshot of what that world was like and just how horrific it was. And all that was really interesting to me, but I'm not an economic historian. I didn't really want to study the business side of it. But what was really kind of blew my mind a little bit was that he had all these letters um, back to his family in Britain where he was talking about these children that he had had with an enslaved woman. And it's this woman who was actually the slave of his cousin, Simon. And Simon Taylor, um, this is a little bit inside baseball, but for people that study Jamaica, Simon Taylor was the richest man in Jamaica probably the richest man perhaps in the British empire at the time. I mean, it was, he just had so much money from, from his dealings with, uh, with slavery and sugar. And so, um, so John Taylor, the person that I was, uh, whose papers I was chronicling, he uh, had these four children with an enslaved woman and he was writing back to his family saying, I'm not really sure what to do. I feel a lot of um, devotion to them. Do you think you could accept them and maybe find a school for them back in, in England? Because there's really nothing that I, like I can do for them here on the island. And it was sort of stunning to me because I certainly knew that there were interracial relationships in slave society. So that wasn't all that unusual or rare. And I knew that in some cases, fathers would take care of the children they had by enslaved women. But I had never heard of someone going to that extent of actually sending them off to live with family members across the ocean. And I really just wanted to know more about that. And so I kind of just said, well, maybe I'll pursue this. And I 
I kind of dug around and you know, my, my first attempts to try to learn more about this population were really tough. I spent two months in Britain, um, sort of my first summer after graduate school, and I couldn't find much else. And I thought, oh, well, maybe this John Taylor guy is just an unusual individual. And then I kind of did some other graduate work and I went off to do sort of my dissertation studies, you know, really get into the archives. And I was off in Britain for about six months. And I was studying something else because I thought, well, this, this whole thing about these mixed race people, there's not more I can find. And so I just kind of gave it up and I was sort of studying something different. I wanted to look at anti-slavery writings in the 18th century and see you know, what they said about racial ideologies. And I just got really bored with that very quickly. And I noticed that you know, uh, I was, was just struggling to kind of be inspired by it. And so what I would do rather than just kind of, you know, uh, uh, kick off early and go home, I would just start pulling up material from Jamaica to see what was in there. And I kind of randomly pulled up the minutes from the Jamaican House of Assembly. And I was looking through those and it was just, again, almost just a total happenstance. Like one of the first pages that I turned to when I, when I was looking through those was a petition from a mixed race person in Jamaica asking if the Jamaican Assembly could grant them kind of special rights. There were a lot of civil rights um, that were taken away from Jamaicans in the 18th century. And this person was asking to have some of those rights restored. And the, the reason that they gave why they deserved sort of more rights than the typical mixed race person is that they had actually gone to school in Britain and they were now back. And that, that entitled them to some more rights. And I thought, oh, that's really interesting. That's kind of like that John Taylor and his children. And I turned the page and there was another one of these petitions. And I, a few more pages, there was another petition. And slowly, so I, for the next few days, I started to go through all these records and I found about 650 people, or excuse me, I'm sorry. Um, I found about 650 petitions, about 120 people uh, within that had actually petitioned uh, and, and they noted they were mixed race people who had gone off to Britain. And at that point I realized, oh, there's an actual group of people I can now study. I have you know about 120 names that I can follow. And I just started uh, building out from there. So I, I then went to Jamaica for six months and I looked through the, the wills that were lodged in that island and found another hundred plus people who um, were in a will saying that they were in Britain at the time. And so I was just able to kind of cobble together through those different sources, a kind of source base of individuals and sort of use their stories to tell this larger narrative about the migration. It's so exciting what you found in the archives. It's really amazing how it happened. And um, these are exciting stories, just hearing about what you do in the archives. Are there some particular stories about individuals that you'd like to share? Yeah, and, and again, it's sort of the, I think one of the things about archival work, and I think most people, most historians would say this is that, you know, there's a lot of effort that goes into it, but there's also a lot of luck. And that was, that seemed to be the case for me too, where you just kind of stumble across something that's really interesting. and. And one of the luckiest finds that I had, um, I was in Jamaica and I was uh, going through the Jamaica archives in Spanish town. And it's just this tiny one little room place in the middle of the city. Um, it's just gorgeous. It, it's this, it was basically the colonial capital of, of Jamaica. So this gorgeous 18th century building. And um, I was going through these chancery court records and the chancery court was just kind of like, almost like the people's court <laughs> for Jamaica. It wasn't really based on law, it was just based on common sense. And, and so I was just kind of going through these chancery court cases, seeing if anything would pop up. And I was kind of in a dry spell at that point when I was in the archives, like I hadn't found a lot for a few weeks. And so I was really desperate to find something. And I came across the story 
of uh, John Morris and his children. And they had lodged, um, there was a, a chancery court case in which uh, uh, they were being sued by their cousin over this Jamaican fortune. So John Morris was a white man who had gone from England to Jamaica and he had built up this large fortune, both from a plantation, or he had several plantations actually, and he was also a slave trader. And he had um, five mixed race children by a very elite woman of color, a woman who herself had some money behind her. Um, but his children were considered mulattoes according to Jamaica law. So they had all the same kind of prohibitions on their rights as everyone else did. And this, uh, this lawsuit was coming from a cousin of theirs in England who they had actually met once, um, but they were not close at all. And his cousin was basically trying to use colonial laws to disinherit them from this massive fortune. It was a fortune that was worth at the time about 120,000 pounds, which is, would be millions upon millions of dollars. And so it was interesting. And within the lawsuit, um, they noted that they uh, were all now, they all left from Jamaica and were now living in England. And so I was able to kind of follow their story and it was a really fascinating story. And, and basically what happened with this Morse clan was that um, they left with their father in 1760 to go to England. And the reason for that was that 1760, there was a massive series of enslaved uprisings called Tacky's Revolt. And it scared a lot of people thinking that there was gonna, the enslaved people were gonna take over the island. And so they fled with their father to England. Um, and they grew up in, in a fair amount of splendor in England. And each of the children kind of had their own interesting lives from that. So the eldest John Morris ends up going into the army. Um, he rises pretty high into the army's ranks and then he kind of just descends into profligacy and he's kind of a drunk and just you know has a sort of dissipated life. Um, and then there's Robert Morris, who is the second oldest. He becomes a lawyer. He ends up going off to, to India because he doesn't think he's going to be able to make enough money as a lawyer in England. And he uh, serves in a few capacities there. He goes back to the law when he's in, in India, but he makes a small fortune in India as well, which gets kind of added to his own inheritance from Jamaica. Um, and he has two sisters actually follow him to India as well. Um, so uh, Anne and Sarah go off and they go because they're hoping to meet a man in India that might be also equally wealthy because India was a place where lots of people could go and make a huge fortune, especially in the 1760s before there's a lot of um, reform of, of that colony. And so they end up meeting these very high ranking officials in the East India Company. Um, they all go back to England and they live pretty prosperously. And then the final daughter ends up marrying a very well-to-do uh, England uh, English attorney. And so this family was just really kind of fascinating because they live this very global life. They were born in Jamaica, they go off to England, uh, three of them go off to India for a time, they come back and they basically sort of um, assimilate to some degree into British society. And um, kind of as I was finishing up the research for the book, one of the things that was interesting is I found the letters of one of their children who um, he's writing back and forth to like a, a colleague of his and it gets brought up that the, the colleague has heard rumors that um, he's actually Jamaican. And he says, I have no knowledge of, of being Jamaican. And most likely he did have knowledge of being Jamaican because his parents or his father at least was from Jamaica. But he kind of pretends that he doesn't know what this person is talking about because he's really trying to push away from that um, colonial past and trying to get away from this rising tide of racism, which is emerging in Britain at the time. But it's also possible that the family really were able to kind of launder their history well enough 
that he didn't know that his family had come from the Caribbean. So it was just a really fascinating story of people who really traveled the globe, but also had really complex feelings about their own um, sort of racial and, and ethnic backgrounds. It's such a remarkable story. And when you think about that story and the others, how did you develop a larger argument? And what would you say the larger argument is? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think it took me a little while to figure that out because sometimes when you're taking a lot of different stories and putting them together, it's hard to know how they all fit together. And in some ways they don't all fit perfectly, right? History is very messy and you can't always tell um, how all these trends come together. But one of the things that really stood out to me as I was looking at this over this long period of time is that um, for that Morris family that I was just talking about, you know, they come over to England in the 1760s and they really don't have a lot of problems assimilating or even kind of um, getting people to, to, to identify them as British as opposed to Jamaican. And part of that is I think that there's a looser attitude towards what race might mean, right? We, we sort of think like the way that people today think about race was the way they thought about race 250 years ago, but that's not the case at all. Race as a concept is always evolving. And so for Britain, in Britain at the time, in the middle of the 18th century, there's a lot of different factors that go into how you identify a person as being from one race or, or another, or even in a sort of assigning prejudice. And so it's not just sort of the way they look, but it's also what is their language and what is their religion and how much money do they have and what is their gender. And there's all these kind of factors that go into it, which make it much more um, distinct than just, well, you look this way, therefore you're in this group. So for the Morses in the, the 1760s, they really, uh, through their wealth, um, through their advantage, they were able to kind of assimilate pretty readily into British society. When I was looking at some of the other groups, including John Taylor's children, John Taylor, who I mentioned at the beginning of our conversation, um, you know, his children come over in 1792, so a full generation afterward, and it's much more of a challenge for them, even though they have many of the same advantages. And uh, what you start to see is there's more and more institutional roadblocks to them being able to assimilate. And one of the big ones for John Taylor's eldest son, James Taylor, is that he tries to go into the East India Company army. And right when he tries to go in, there's a prohibition put against any person of non-European heritage from joining the East India Company army. And so he actually has to lie about his heritage there are these really kind of crazy stories. Um, you know, when the family was preparing him for his interview, they were like putting white powder on his face to see if it would make him look whiter. And they're doing all these different things to see what they could do to make him look like he's a white person and not have any African ancestry. And they end up kind of cutting his hair short and giving him a blue shirt. And they're like, that basically tamps down what they perceive to be his African features. And he does pass the interview, but there's, there's a lot of grumblings from the East India Company army that, um, you know, this was a, it sort of passed someone that shouldn't have been passed and it actually kind of tarnishes the reputation of the family for a few years. But it really goes to show the ways in which you start to see racial animus starting to build in Britain. And then sort of at the conclusion of the book in the 1830s, uh, many of the migrants that are arriving then, really it's, it's a challenge to assimilate at all. And many of them are turning to radical politics because they realize that they're not able to assimilate in any degree as sort of their peers have been able to do 30, 40, 50 years before that. And the argument that I make about that is I think there's a few uh, key reasons. One is that as Britons are disengaging with the idea of slavery, in particular because there's a big movement uh, starting in 1786 to 
to abolish the slave trade. And that's a huge political movement and it, it brings a lot of people into it. And so people are just talking about difference and who Africans are and who Europeans are and are they equal? Do we need to consider that when we're thinking about the slave trade? So that automatically gets people thinking about race. Um, a second thing that's really important is that there is a massive enslaved uprising um, in 1791 in, in what's now Haiti that becomes really critical for the way people are transforming their attitudes. And it's not just because this is this big political conflagration which upsets people's notion of what sort of uh, uh, the future in the Americas is gonna be because it, it terrifies a lot of people that you suddenly have a black republic. And that goes against their very notion of, of who is supposed to be at the top of a country and a nation. But more sort of specifically that Haitian revolution, there's a concern that the reason why um, enslaved people in Haiti rose up was that French educated people of color had gone back to that island um, or that colony, I should say, and it actually sown the seeds of revolution. They had brought the French revolution from France and kind of use it to poison the minds of the enslaved people. And so that really pushes a lot of people against the similar migration um, from Jamaica to England, because um, what's interesting not to kind of talk around a lot of these issues, but you know, what was happening in Jamaica was happening in many of the other colonies in the Caribbean. So there were these same migrants going from the French colonies to France and from the Spanish colonies to Spain. So, uh, so there's kind of these parallel tracks of, of movement and in the English empire, um, they don't want to see what happened in Haiti happen in Jamaica. And then the final thing is that um, it, I think one of the reasons why these uh, children in particular struggle after 1800 is that there's a real kind of constriction in what family membership means too. So that as you see um, kind of the merchant community really exploding in their prominence in Britain, and as you see um, capitalism become more and more aggressive in, in Britain, um, it really changes the way the families relate to one another. And it really changes who's considered to be acceptable as a member of the family. And you start to see a kind of constriction in what's tolerated as a sort of family member. And so the, the third part of this argument is that as notions of family change, it sort of sidelines mixed race people who are now no longer seen to be contributing to the family, especially because they're seen as sort of financial dead ends. They themselves can't help to advance the family, therefore, um, they're not adequate members of the family. So it's kind of a three-part argument, but all of it sort of comes together to say that over the course of this period that I'm studying, things get much, much worse for these migrants. This is such an important set of interventions. Um, it's a really important argument. Um, what sort of challenges did you find studying and writing about young people of color? Yeah, it was. A, it took me a while to really find those individuals, as I mentioned earlier. Um, and part of it is because, you know, when we think about how records are constructed, oftentimes people of color are not recognized as being important people worth recording. And that's a big problem for anyone studying, you know, people of non-white heritage prior to to say 1900 or so. Is that there's just uh, there's not an attention paid to many groups of people, and so the archives create a kind of silence that we talked about um, where, where people are just not sort of put into those records. Um, on top of that is you just have this reluctance for some of these migrants to even identify as being mixed race because they don't want them to see themselves, they don't want to identify themselves as being subject to laws that are going to diminish their capabilities to 
um, you know, start a business or to vote or to do anything, right? So many people didn't want to talk about their ethnicity and their background. And so that also became a challenge to find those individuals. And then the final thing is it really is um, anyone studying kind of the history of youth is that oftentimes they're just not an interest in young people in the 18th century. And so they're seen as sort of these adults in training, but they're not really worthy of comment. And that's especially true on uh, plantations where enslaved people are not really recorded as being interesting to white observers at all. And, and their children are, are far less important because the children aren't contributing to the plantation, at least in terms of its profitability. It's actually, they're seen as a kind of economic loss. So that really makes it tough because there's just not as much attention paid first off to people of color and then second off to children. And so that was always a, a struggle for me um, when I was, was doing this research. It's really sobering thinking about how hard it is to find these people in the records. Um, what 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 more do you think could be done on the topic? I think there's still a lot more that can be done, mostly because you know there's. I sort of stopped in 1833, and the reason for that is that's the year that England abolishes slavery in its empire, and so it seemed like kind of a fitting end. But I think there's still a lot more that can be done for studying the continued influence of people of color in Britain um, to see sort of how they still had a political importance. And I think to kind of trace those storylines up to the present, one of the things about British society is today is that the, you know, many Britons are really um, trying to make sense of the multicultural moment that Britain is in right now. And um, especially over the last 60 or 70 years, there's been, there's been more non-white migration into Britain, is just trying to have a better sense of that history. And so I think there's a lot more connections that can be done from sort of the early 19th century up to the present to try to understand that continued influence of people of color. Um, and I think it's also just, there's a lot more to be done in Jamaica as well. Um, there's been some, there's some stuff that is in the works. So Shauna Sweeney is at the University of Toronto and Aaron Trahey is at Yale. They're doing work on, um, uh, both enslaved and free people of color and their impacts in Jamaica in terms of being, uh, you know, market women and um, sort of uh, uh, the practices of inheritance and how that creates a kind of community of color in Jamaica. So I think there's still a lot more about this community that we just don't know about. And, you know, I looked at this very small slice of that community and I think there's a much richer story to be told. And I think people are in the process of telling that story. That's really exciting and hopeful too. Dan, thanks for talking with us about your book today. It's been really interesting. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Shusai Podcasts. You can find more materials and features from the Society for the History of Children and Youth online. shcy.org.